Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. As we remain standing, let's pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us, for giving yourself for us, that we might be redeemed and reconciled to God the Father, that we might be reconciled to one another through love. Would you do your work among us this morning? Would you reveal your love and would you build us up in that love for the glory of your name? Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So I sound terrible. I'm really sorry. I, I have a, a head cold, and I don't think I realized how bad it sounds until I just heard myself speaking through the microphone. So I hope you'll bear with me. This morning we come to the end of our series of sermons on the life of the church in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we began this series five weeks ago in chapter one, where Paul explained that the church is the place where God has chosen to dwell here on earth. We are the body of Christ. In chapter 2, we learned that as the body of Christ, we are at the heart of God's plan for creation. We are the community in which God is reconciling the world to himself and us to one another. Early in chapter 4, we discovered that God gifts each one of us in such a way that we be, become indispensable to each other. And then last week, Tripp took us through the middle of chapter 4, where Paul explains that church is the place where we learn to be truly human as we set aside our old selves and become new people in Christ. All of these things are true. And all of these things take place as we gather together for worship, prayer, preaching, fellowship, and sharing life. To be the church is to be gathered together week in and week out in the presence and in the power of God. We come now to the end of chapter 4 and to a very practical paragraph about what it looks like to live in this way as the reconciled people of God. If you're not there already, you want to turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4, it's on page 978 in those red Bibles in front of you. Page 978. Therefore, Paul says in verse 25, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Now, this is not simply a warning against lying. The falsehood that Paul is speaking of is the false self, the old self that has been replaced by our new identity in Christ. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying, having set aside who you once were apart from Christ, having been freed from slavery to sin, having received the love of God and the gift of his Holy Spirit, Having experienced all of these things, you need to remind each other who you are. 
Tell each other the truth, that you are sons and daughters of the King, heirs of the eternal riches of God and instruments of His glory. You are no longer individuals, estranged from God and one another. You are one body, one people, and you belong to one another. After this reminder, he jumps to a series of instructions. There are 11 different imperatives or commands over the next seven verses. But since I don't imagine any of us is up for an 11-point sermon this morning, I want to try to treat them thematically together, beginning with the theme of verses 26 and 27, which is the importance of handling our anger. The importance of handling our anger. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, there are people in the church who believe that anger of any kind is bad. They seem to think that a good Christian should never be in a position where he or she gets angry or causes anger. If someone gets angry, then we have failed. And since admitting failure isn't an option, Instead of getting angry when a situation calls for it or acknowledging another person's anger, these folks pretend that everything's just fine. Unfortunately, we do fail. We fail each other quite a bit. And we need to learn to deal with our failures in a godly manner. Anger is a fact of life. When you live in community with other people, you are going to irritate, offend, and wrong each other. Anger will naturally follow. It happens in our homes, it happens at work, and it happens right here in the community of the church. And what matters, what matters is what we do with our anger. Paul gives us three very practical instructions. The first is don't sin in your anger. Don't sin in your anger. So anger itself is not sinful, but it can lead very easily into sin. So later in the passage, Paul returns to and develops the theme of anger when he says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So he's employing five synonyms for anger here, each of which highlights a different way in which anger can turn into sin. Bitterness. Bitterness is a change in your default setting toward another person. You no longer treat them with trust, but with suspicion. You assume the worst. And so you view them with resentment from a place of self-protection. That's bitterness, wrath. Wrath has to do with loss of control. When your anger becomes unmanageable, and you can't control your actions, then it's no longer a natural response to wrongdoing. It's become your master, and you are its servant. Clamor and slander. These are offensive weapons employed by our our anger. When we go on the attack against another person, we exaggerate their deficiencies. That's clamor. Instead of addressing the offense, we attack their character. That's slander. 
Clamor and slander perfectly describe the cancel culture of our social media age. It's lots of howling and fussing and attacking ad hominem. Well, then there's malice. It's different from the preceding synonyms for anger because it has less to do with verbal, with the verbal expression of anger, and it has more to do with an inner attitude. Malice is just, it's just mean-spiritedness. It's that viciousness that wells up within us when we feel wronged. Now, we've all felt this, and we, we all know how dangerous it can be. Malice is like venom, and it has got to be extracted from your heart before the poison spreads. When it comes to handling our anger, the first step, Paul says, is don't let it turn to sin. Don't let it grow into bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, or malice. Second, Paul implores us to deal with it, to address it, not to let it fester. That's what he means by saying, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Before Alicia and I were married, we were given some great advice. Every night before you go to bed, pray together. Well, we committed to this discipline, and for the past 23 years, I have prayed on odd days of the month, and Alicia has prayed on even days. Although, I have to say, sometimes Alicia will be a little tired and not feel like praying, and she'll pull the whole, you're the spiritual leader, aren't you? Shouldn't you pray for us? So I really pray about two-thirds of the time. Just, I just need to say that. She's here. She won't dispute that claim. Here's what we've learned. Over the years, the act of praying is often more important than the content of our prayers. And here's, here's why I say that. You can't pray with someone if you're mad at them or if they're mad at you. You, just, you can't do it. In order to get to the point where you can pray, first you have to deal with any anger that might be lingering between you. What this means when you do this is that arguments don't boil over from one day into the next. They get dealt with. So during our first year of marriage, we had a lot of late nights. We learned that we had to deal with our conflict, to get it out in the open and to address it. But that was hard. We didn't know how to do it. We had to learn to be honest, to confess, to confront, to apologize, to forgive, and then to pray. We had some late nights, but we slept well. Most of us, we don't handle our anger very well. Instead of addressing our anger and its source or its cause, we suppress it, we deny it, we bottle it up so that it turns into bitterness or so that it explodes into rage, or it leaks out in passive-aggressive commentary. We must learn to address our anger with one another and with ourselves. This means not only learning to confront others when they've wronged you, or when you have seen them wrong someone else, it means probably first and foremost keeping a careful eye on yourself and being quick to apologize when you have wronged someone in your life. This is incredibly important because of the third thing that Paul says about anger in these verses. 
He wants us to know that anger makes us spiritually vulnerable. Anger makes us spiritually vulnerable. He says in verse 27 that we must give no opportunity to the devil, reminding us that our life together, it takes place in the context of an ongoing spiritual battle. Jesus Christ is at work in the church, and he is reconciling the world to himself and us to one another. This is the place where he's chosen to dwell, where he's chosen to reveal himself. Don't you know that the devil knows this, and he hates it? He will do anything to tear us apart. We need to remember this when we find ourselves in conflict. The devil's desire is to turn us against each other so that instead of standing side by side in the face of a common enemy, the devil, we stand face to face fighting each other. Next time you find yourself angry with a fellow believer, will you remember this? Anger is an opportunity for the devil to divide and to destroy but it is also an opportunity for Jesus to reconcile and to transform. It's a place where God does miracles. And you know, our anger, it, our anger, it always goes one of two ways. Division or reconciliation. Don't be a stooge for the devil. Don't him, let him manipulate your anger and so undermine this community. I'm sorry about the handkerchief. <laughs> so what has Paul said about anger? He said, in your anger, do not sin. Instead, deal with it in a timely way with openness and honesty, recognizing that anger makes you spiritually vulnerable and that you need the Lord to guide and to guard you. And we need to move on to our second theme, and it's found in verse 28. And this theme is the importance of checking our motives the importance of checking our motives. Paul writes, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So apparently within the Ephesian church, there were men and women who were not above a little bit of larceny. We don't know what kind of thieving was going on, but it was enough of a problem that Paul addresses it. And when he does, he mentions not just the crime, but the motives behind it. And that's what I want to, uh, to highlight. I hope we don't have many literal thieves in our midst, uh, but I know that we are all moved at different times by the motives of a thief. And I want you to think about this with me. A thief is motivated quite simply by self-interest. He puts his own needs above others in a very concrete way by taking their things. A godly man or woman, by contrast, puts the needs of others above his or her own needs, sharing when they see a need instead of stealing to meet their own. So we live in a consumer economy, and that has shaped our outlook on life far more than I think any of us would like to admit. This means that we approach just about everything with the mindset of consumers where what we want is at the center of what we do. Now this means that we often come to church as consumers, looking to meet our personal needs through this life together. 
Sure, there are others involved, and we, we need to be nice, but the primary driver in joining and participating is to meet our own spiritual needs. Well, not so fast, Paul wants to say. You are members of one another. The needs of those around you are now your needs because you are inextricably intertwined in Christ. There's no longer just me, it's we. Our attitude toward others in the church shouldn't be, how can you help me get what I want? Instead, it should be, what do you need? How can I encourage you? What burden are you carrying that I can share? If we don't check our motives, considering the needs of others greater than our own, then we will be like a bunch of thieves stealing from each other and impoverishing one another when we should be sharing and building each other up. Paul goes on, and so must we. We've talked about handling our anger and checking our emotions. Now we turn to watching our tongues in verse 29. Watching our tongues. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So one of Paul's central concerns in this very practical paragraph is on the words that we speak to each other. This comes up when he talks about anger in verses 26 and 31, and he reinforces it more generally here. Words matter, they really matter. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but, but words can wound our hearts. The term that's translated as corrupting talk, it's a really vivid term. It means rotten or rancid. It's used to refer to the smell of fish left out on a hot day or to decaying vegetable matter or even to death. The imagery is meant to be jarring and visceral an unkind, thoughtless, or harsh word, it brings the stench of death into a room. I have to confess, I am often shocked at the way in which Christian people speak to each other, especially online. Whether it's on social media or online forums or in the discussion chain that follows an article on a website, people aren't just thoughtless. They're, they're actually downright mean and often cruel. It's rancid, it's rotten, it stinks. And it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Once again, Paul reminds us of the spiritual nature and the ultimate reality of what we're doing here, of what we're involved in. What we say and how we speak either brings joy to the Spirit of God or it grieves him. Instead of tearing each other apart, we're meant to build each other up in a way that fits the moment and that acts as a vehicle for grace. This isn't just about relational health. This is about spiritual realities. So far in this section, Paul has talked about handling our anger, checking our motives, and watching our tongues. Well, he brings it all to a conclusion in the final three verses of our reading by rooting us in the love of God through Jesus Christ. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So everything that Paul has been talking about in this section, from the warnings to the commands to the encouragement, it's all rooted in the love of God and is an expression of the love of God. Be kind, he says. Paul used the same term, kindness, back in chapter 2 to describe God's overwhelming, undeserved benevolence toward us. And he returns to it here as he draws a connection between God's love for us and our love for each other. It is as simple as this. Because we have been loved by God, we are to love one another. And we are to love one another in the same way that God loved us in Jesus Christ. We are to be kind and tender. We are to forgive readily. We are to love sacrificially. Most weeks during our worship, as we prepare to take up our offering and share in Holy Communion, I repeat these words, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God. You know these words. They're a reminder not just to imitate Jesus in our life together. They're a reminder of the fact that before we were ever told to love each other, we were shown the love of God in Christ. We were given love freely. You are loved. You are loved, and it is through God's love expressed and experienced in this community of grace that he is pouring out his reconciling love to the world. I hope, I hope you see what a glorious, noble thing this is. And I hope that you grasp, grasp just how important our life together is in the plan and providence of God. So I want to end with Paul's prayer of blessing for the Ephesians at the end of chapter 3. It's a prayer that encompasses all that he desires for the church and all that I desire for us here at Holy Trinity. Let's pray. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, According to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.